Okay, guys, my only real thought at the beginning is uh, the podcast you're about to listen to. I talk a lot, and I'm really sorry to my fellow podcasters and to all the people that listen to me. I was very drunk, I think, and very talkative on this um, on this particular podcast. And uh, holy shit. So that's really all I have to say. I have a lot to reflect upon at the back end. So give that a listen. What to do with 500 Rapage Sakardassian Yamak sauce? Oh yeah, trade it for 100 gross of quality self-sealing stem bolts. Oh yeah, then set up the Noje Consortium to trade those bolts for 7 tessipates of Bajoran land. Oh yeah, it's time for 5 bars of gold pressed platinum. Hello and welcome to The Rules of Acquisition, a podcast where we're going through Every single episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, the greatest TV show again. I don't know. I got nothing. <laughs> this one's actually pretty great. But anyways, with me as always is James Nolan. Hello. And Hugh Crawford. Hey, guys. And we are talking about an episode called Progress. Yes. This aired on May 9th, 1993. The IMDb description is Kira must convince an old Bajoran farmer to leave a moon becoming uninhabitable due to mining operations. Jake and Nog try to trade off Cardassian Yamak sauce. Oh, uh, yes, the yeah, that's wonderful red paperclip storyline. <laughs> <laughs> We've got an A and B story here. Isn't that what we have? Did we trade off last week with an A and B? Or? Yeah, the comparison to last week is that we have a, an A and B storyline that is in no way connected. Yeah, do not interact whatsoever. <laughs> right. I don't even know if I, because I, I came up with some bullshit like last week, but I don't even think I can do that this week. Yeah. And both of the B stories involve Nog and Jake's wacky shenanigans. Right. So. Yeah. 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 We're in the Nog period of early Deep Space Nine. <laughs> right. I think this is a really good Deep Space Nine episode, but it's not a good Star Trek episode. Hmm. This is an episode where we get to see what Star Trek Deep Space Nine is all about. But all the things that somebody might like about Star Trek, none of that's here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's true. This is I really like this episode, but yeah, you're right. So did I. Okay, so the, all of that's interesting because I kind of don't. Huh, really? I really like this episode. Yeah, I know, and it's the kind of stuff that feels like an episode I would like. Yeah, this is all the stuff you said that you need. You got your emotion. I know, I, I know. You got your crying a little bit, but not too much crying. <laughs> yeah, it does have some crying. It does have some emotion, and we'll get into it later when we start unpacking some of the Kira stuff, but uh, there's certain things about, I don't know, like this episode was made for me to like it. Yeah, it's like, it is, you're right though, it's not, it's not a Star Trek episode. It takes place on the fucking Shire, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they don't go out to wild new frontiers. I had to look it up because it seems a lot to me like there was a, I think a third season Next Generation episode called Incense of Command. I didn't just have that on me. I looked it up. <laughs> Where Data has to get a whole group of Middle Earth people to leave their planet or do something. It's the one where he ends up having to just get mean and he blows up their water reclamation Yeah, I think. Well, or something Right, because the when I was watching this one, there's like, it was the same as like the Vegas episode or whatever uh-huh. where I thought that there was a way something happened that didn't happen but i was probably remembering that next generation episode because yeah in that one doesn't like one of the farmers have a dead son or something that he's buried that's why he won't leave yeah and he's played by like an actor you see in other like law and orders and stuff like i can't remember but yeah yeah so vaguely i remember that and i looked it up and it was instance of command 
mind, but it seems like it's pretty similar to that. But yes, it does. So this felt recycled to you in some way? No. So I or just like a familiar TV trope of eminent domain type. I don't know. It seems to me and I actually read that this is a critique that I think that like Peter Allen Fields, the writer of the episode, feels that way, too, is that I <laughs> you wrote it, jerk. Yeah. Well, but he, he had a pitch to him and said, write this. And they're like, OK, but isn't this so done? this episode stars Brian Keith, who's great. famous who's who's great. He's a Hollywood old television. He was Hardcastle from Hardcastle and McCormick. <laughs> and he was in Family Affair. So he's like, a, you know, he's an old classic TV guy. And he comes in. So they have this like grandfatherly relationship with Kira over the course of the episode. And it seems to mean that that element is out of place. Not anything about him, not anything about what he's doing and not anything about necessarily how she responds to it. But that they're so cordial and affable seems weird. to me. OK, <laughs> see, I felt the opposite. I actually thought that that was like an undercurrent deliberately placed there. And I thought it was actually well done. What if he was tougher? I didn't think it was out of place at all. What if he was tougher? What if he was Grand Torino, Clint Eastwood? Then it wouldn't have been as subtle. Yeah. I mean, we know the guy's tough. He settled the moon by himself. I know. And I like that part. And I, I have good stuff to say about that part. But it seems to me that, like, he's so cutie pie <laughs> that, like, I don't ever feel like there was a threat. No, there. he's not a threat. And I think that's the point. I don't know. When he has that, like, let go of her and he attacks the yeah. Bajoran she brought with him. I thought he got intense there. Okay, okay. I went into this thinking that I would have that everyone is feeling like that I there was something about it that just doesn't work. All right. Well, let's unpack it and let's all go through it and then and then we can... I think you, if, if you just feel like something didn't resonate with you, there's nothing not any of us can do about that. No, that's not necessarily <laughs> you know, I true. I think that's what I'm hearing. That's not necessarily true. You can make points and contextualize it in a way where I'll get Well, it. just because it didn't resonate for you the same way that you resonated with the, in some ways, with the touchy-feeliness of Cisco and his son. I did. But I don't, because my family's not that affectionate, I guess. Yeah, you're not touchy-feely, yeah. folks. So, yeah, no, I get it. And I get that. I think that it was, I don't know, I feel like that it would be, if you're trying to make an episode about progress, and when that's what it's called, so that this idea that Kira is going to have to get used to trampling over people for the greater good of Bajor, which is going to feel like what Cardassians did to them, Right. Right. I and mean, that's sort of the theme. Yeah, that's it. So I get that. I mean, I get it. And she's going to have to sort of force her way into that. What's going on is that she's having to transition from being an idealistic freedom fighter to being a pragmatic administrator. Right. And that is an interesting shift in her that takes place throughout a couple points in this first season. And we already have Cisco. Cisco is already there. He's pragmatic as fuck. Yeah. And they go out of their way to highlight yeah, that in this that's episode. That's what makes it interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> all right, just fudge the numbers, basically. Or, you know. <laughs> yeah. He basically just told Julian to lie. Yeah. He's lie, lie to me. And he goes, but that'd be a lie. And he was like, fuck you, lie. <laughs> one of my favorite. And, and basically threatened him. You yeah. know, <laughs> it was great. Yeah. That's one of my favorite parts of the season. <laughs> but OK, going back to the beginning. Just the first when Akira and Dax are in the, the roundabout circling the moon. Mm-hmm. I'm just going back to that just because that was at the very beginning. You finally have that what they talk about in the show Bible of that mentor or the relationship between Dax and Kira is supposed to be a big, tight relationship. Yeah. This is the first time they've actually had any interactions and they're just like girlfriends. Yeah. And talking about is Morn hot. Right. Which I guess yeah. it's fine. 
I like I that. I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has got seven <laughs> hairs that she finds attractive. It sets that whole... That she's a weird... Because in the story, in the Bible for the show, they're like, oh, but Dax is like a wise mentor to Kira because she's a 300-year-old man. And mm-hmm. I think by the time they get to this first episode with showing that they're good friends, they have to throw that out and they're just like, oh, they're just gossiping and they, the girlfriends. they're girlfriends. Yeah. yeah. It also, it's the first time that sets up that Dax finds creepy, gross things attractive. Yeah. <laughs> she's the stranger. She's the weirdest one in their uh, sex in the space station. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sort of relationship, yeah. She's the definitely the weirdest. Yeah, she's got ex-boyfriends uh, with visible brains and yeah, telekinetic yeah, auras and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. She's fun. Out of everybody in the Star Trek canon, she likes the freakiest, deakiest shit. Yeah, yeah. This is basically what, what it comes down to. And I dig that. And I think that that, that is a character that she can play convincingly. Right, they figured out how to make a role that Perry Farrell or Dax's yes. addiction or whatever could actually sink her teeth into. So, And she's good right. when yeah. they finally figure out how to write for her, I think. She does feel comfort. She feels comforted. In fact, I think in a lot of ways this episode is maybe specifically for Kira, but also for Dax too, the first time that they're ever comfortable. Yeah. And maybe it seems like even in the smaller scenes, everybody has their place better or more sure-footed than in any of the other scenes. I even think like O'Brien in his one little scene with the manifest is a more sort of centered, yeah, yeah. normalized O'Brien. They've been able to live in the characters a little bit. Even like the quirk yeah. when he berates Nog at the very beginning, he's like, mm-hmm. Nog, God, God damn it, you gave that guy's drink back without making him pay for it, and he really lays into him and then feels bad a little bit. He's like, Nog, you're, you're a good boy. That was such a... Mm-hmm. Finally acted moment from Armin Shimmerman or whatever. That was like, oh. yeah, yeah. And he yeah, played because he was allowed because he didn't have to carry any really story. So he just got to be sort of villainous, not villainous like a bad guy, but like, right, right, right. you know, like a threat. Like he's a tough guy. And he got to sort of just exist throughout the whole episode like a tough guy. Yeah. And it was fun to watch. That's that. what I liked about this episode. It This whole episode is just felt like we're going to slow it down and take space to just let people live in their mm-hmm. characters. Yes. It felt like good character work for once, mm-hmm. which we desperately needed. There's not not a whole lot happens in this episode, you know? It's all pastoral when she's on yeah. whatever the moon's called. It's not called Jericho, but it sounds like Jericho, which that's the whole <laughs> theme I'm going to bring up a little bit later. But Right. No, I know. And if we're just like early things that are weird, Pedro has five moons. It must have the craziest tides because I assume they have large bodies of water. Oh, right. I think they do. They showed it at one point, and it is large oceans on there, so that would yeah, that would be kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, you would have some of the most like I don't know, I don't know. There's got to be crazy tides going on. Yeah, right. Or maybe the five moons bounce each other out, and you don't get much time. I don't know. Maybe or like every weird. There's a weird equinox where you know there's tsunamis every three and a quarter years or something. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So, and uh, I guess, uh, do we hate the Noggin Jake storyline? No, I liked it. No, I liked it. Okay. Okay. I didn't hate, I didn't hate it either. I I liked it quite a bit. I, uh, I I just didn't know how everyone else felt. About yeah, it. I thought it utilized the setting of a space station rather well. There's lots of coming and going. A lot of it is mundane. Not all of it is nefarious. And I thought it showed that rather well. Yeah, what too. life on the station could it could be like? Yeah, I think it was a little after the initial inspiration. I think the entire storyline was a little bit negative to Nog. A little, little bit because he doesn't really. Because Jake is the one that's like, no, land is useful. Jake right. is the one that. 
you know, and at the end, it all culminates in after they finally worked and now it's worth a lot of money. He just sells it to his uncle for five, whatever they were asking for at the beginning. Right, right. Five bars, bars of gold. Of yeah, which yeah. they could have like, I was like, no, no, you use your brother or you use Quark as an intermediary. Right, just right. Give him a percentage. He'll be invested in getting the highest price <laughs> for it. Right. And you get the highest price right. point. But, That's you how know, you do it. Yeah. Nog's got a lot to learn. <laughs> no, I mean, and I think that. What if they, what if they traded up eventually for the, the, the mining rights on that moon? And it turns out that Nog and Jake were evicting the old man. That would have, <laughs> that would have been funny. They ended up buying uh, Millibanks, Millibrook. What was his name? Mullabach. Mullabach. So I think Mullabach. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, no. Because, you know, like last episode, I had a problem with the A and B storylines mm-hmm. not matching up whatsoever because there was such a clear way to make it do that. And that episode was about things happening. It didn't really bother me this episode so much because it just felt like the whole episode was just a character episode. So we're just sitting with characters. We're not actually changing anything. We're not yeah. advancing the relationship between O'Brien and Bashir or anything. We're just we're just living with the yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree. It doesn't have, I mean, but it's kind of a relief too, because the Kira stuff is kind of intense yeah, yeah, yeah. and well done. I'm not going to, I'm not going to critique it for that. And my critiques of the episode are at a higher level than like babble or move along. Home. Yeah. This is clearly better. <laughs> this is that. a much better episode. Like, so I'm not saying this episode shit. Yeah. I'm saying that like back on the moon, you have this really personal, almost like you said, Hobbit village yeah. sort of character thing. And you need a break. Yeah. 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 And so the Jake and Nog stuff was just complicated enough to be interesting, but just simple enough to not, you know, annoy me. Right, right. It, there wasn't like five different trading things. And I think probably at the time, these kind of stories are maybe more novel than you. Like earlier, I said, it's like Red Paperclip, which I think is like an internet thing where people try to trade meaningless objects over a span of time to get something of value to them. Uh, okay. Like a car. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think a guy ended up trading a red paper clip and made like a series of like 230 trades to end up owning a house in England, huh. I think is the original story. And this happened like, I don't know, in like 2004 or something like that. Right, right. It was more novel then. And it's interesting. But they even do it on an office episode. Oh, yeah. It's a B-plot, Jim and... Dwight have a B-plot of it. So it's a, sort of a common B-plot, but it's interesting, and it is in character of Nog and Jake to get in these kind of adventures. Yeah. So, wait a minute. It's possible that Jake and Nog inspired all of this, because everything you just said <laughs> is predated by Keep Space Nine. Yes, right. That guy has a house in England now thanks to this Well, well We keep telling people that this show has ramifications that the greater populace doesn't understand, and this is one of them. There would be no punch to Glove yeah, because the guy would yeah. not. Have- oh yeah, that is a punch-drunk glove sort of situation. <laughs> that's a great movie. Yeah. Oh, that's a great movie. Okay, so um, <laughs> trading yogurt for flights. Yeah, I guess if you wanted to make it pertinent, it seems like to me the only way to make a B story pertinent is if Jake and Nock had snagged that Bajaran executive. Yeah, that yells at Kira in that one scene. Right. Tehran, or they, yeah, Minister right. Tehran, Minister Tehran. If they had snagged him into their right. into their shenanigans somehow, that would have sort of tied the plot together. Right? Yeah, yeah. Just the names in here 
this is my whole conspiracy theory that there's a weird, they're insinuating all these Middle Eastern names and everything into this. It's Minister mm-hmm. Tehran. I mean, they're going full space Israel again with him. She's basically arguing for the diaspora, you know, we have to come back to Bajor. Oh, yeah. And he's like, no, I don't want to, you know, but yeah. the moon sounds like, I forgot what it was called. I thought it was Jericho at first. It's like, wait, no, that's not it. Jedekiko or something. I forgot what it was called. But Jared Doe. Yeah. Gerardo? Gerardo? Gerardo or something, yeah. Yeah. Mr. Tehran. It's pretty damn close. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay, so you think there is like a, a Zionism mm-hmm. sort of theme to the story. A little bit. Where, no, I, I, I think that clearly there, you know, I think early on. Yeah, yeah. It was clearly like when the Ensign Row episode of The Next Generation, that was definitely a oh, yeah, Israeli-Palestinian yeah. issue. Right, right. Well, Berman said that the original title of the show was going to be Space Israel. <laughs> Did he really? Star Trek Space Israel, and then they decided Deep Space Nine had it a little bit more, it was a little snappier yeah. than Space Israel. Well, it was, uh, you know, more Israeli-Palestinian. And then when you start this season, it's more uh, Holocaust. So either way, you're dealing with, you know, right, right. Um, you know, sort of Jewish history. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, having this about the undoing the effects of the diaspora. I mean, I think that's a good point. I think that that's what they're doing. Here. Yeah, yeah. And I, it totally makes sense. There, at no point does it not make sense, the plot with Kira and that. And I did learn something. I'm going to say nice things about Nana Visitor. <laughs> yeah, that was, oh, yeah, that was the, th- the, the bombshell. I thought, like, wait a minute. All right. She actually does yeah. a pretty good job here. We have to- She does a pretty good job. Yeah, she was actually. She carries the show. And here's my thing. She is actually a great reactor when she doesn't have lines. Yeah. And she's acting in scenes. She's doing it really well. So I think it may go back to that theory that you have, the way that you said that it's just the stage actress in her that can't come out. Yeah. And so she broadcasts all of her lines with no sort of human, you know. Right, right, right. With lessened humanity and and because she's playing to the back seat. Right, you right. Know? And that just doesn't work. That's when a dirt. So that's more of a failure of a director. They're not doing her any favors. Yeah, no, because I think like in all of these scene specifically in the scene between Cisco and her later. Oh yeah, yeah. Um yeah. yeah I think that's really it's a great scene. You're on the other side now. Yeah, yeah. I mean I mean but when she still says the lines, it's still she has a, she has a thing where she still says the lines, but for the most part this episode she had a big she had to do a lot of work this episode. Yeah, yeah. And she did it. Yeah, she did, she pulled it off. She carried the story on her shoulders, and and she did good. And I feel like uh, whoever designed her outfit is not doing her any favors, and that's not her fault. Yeah, that was my main <laughs> thing. One, I don't, I kind of doubt that when she takes off that jacket, if she can, they had to build her a new jacket mm-hmm. that was able to be taken off first off. Yeah. I don't think it actually opens up when she casually takes it off. I'd, I'd have to go rewatch the shot to see the cut. I don't either. <laughs> where they switch jackets out. Cause, but yeah, and then... Yeah, that, and we're not being sexist. We totally talk about how the guys look like shit too. And <laughs> right? Yeah, nobody looks good in these weird '90s pantsuits. We're generally just nitpicky on people's appearances. Everybody's yeah. wearing maternity clothes. So wait a minute. Do you think if Odo takes off his jacket, he's got that strappy, strappy blouse? <laughs> do you think Odo? Somebody needs to draw a comic of Odo taking off his uh, security jacket and having a strappy tank top out of that really high waist. Well, he takes it off and it just turns into goo and just puddle well but yeah highways <laughs> that's true but it's that really high waist that makes them look like a bird yeah, right and then you put really unflattering crease lines yeah yeah those on, seams like, on, on it are weird on your ass where you don't want them and like yeah no i'm sorry i'm sorry nana visitor that was wrong to you <laughs> right because she's you know she's an attractive woman but she's an attractive looking woman she is of, of an athletic build mm-hmm. she is <laughs> yeah that was an unfortunate 
sort of Star Trek needs to do better in those avenues too. <laughs> they really do. Yeah, you think about what uh, Marina Sirtis had to put up with for years with her outfits. <laughs> oh, right. Like, yeah. I mean, no jokes. Yeah, so, she had the whole blog post or something about how w- when she had boobs, she was an idiot, and then they gave her took the chest away, and she becomes smart again. <laughs> When they have a new director come in and a new captain, he tells her to like, hey, get out, stop dressing like that. Put on a fucking uniform. And right. she's like, thank God. Thank you. And then afterwards, they're, oh, you look good in that. Why didn't we have you in that the whole time? And she's like, thank you. <laughs> and I believe that was Ronald D. Moore that put her in the suit Probably. and was like, because it was it was right around this time. It's when they Ronnie Cox came on right, and right. ran the Enterprise for like a week. And he was like, I don't want to see your boobs. <laughs> You're in Starfleet. And then she goes and gets officer training later. And it's like, oh, she can be smart <laughs> when they're not all yeah. stuff. Staring at her chest. Just another example of a male trying to police a woman because he can't handle his own <laughs> That's true, but that's, but the, but I mean that's that's all that is. That's how they ended up writing it in. But Ronald D. Moore was like, I I don't understand why she's not in an outfit. And they're like, this is the f- clothes of her people. And he was like, nobody else does this. <laughs> right. We have the blue faced guy. He has to wear a suit. I mean, you let Worf wear his little. It clashes with the blue faced guy's skin too. <laughs> Mustard yellow and bright blue. Yeah. So that was that. Okay. So so off, totally off topic, but on Marina Sirtis, I watched a documentary called Electric Boogaloo about <laughs> Canon films, and it's amazing, and it's on Netflix. I saw that. I saw you should it totally too. watch yeah. it. Yeah, it's pretty great. Highly recommend yeah. it. Yeah. There's a sequence in there about where Marina Sirtis is talking about being in Death Wish 3. There's a whole section of the documentary where Death Wish is like the shittiest show ever. Yes. I see. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like a, it's all about like how awful it is and how exploitative it is and how the director was like a crazy motherfucker. Oh, he was insane. Yeah. No, I, a friend of mine did a film series where they had Alex Winter come in. Oh, yeah. And talk because he's in Death Wish 3 or 4. I can't remember. Yes. Yeah. And he's in the documentary, too. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah, he talked about the guy what Michael Winter or whatever yeah it is it crazy person yeah he had it was i can't well, remember Well, she's telling a story about him because i guess there's a scene in death wish 3 where she gets raped yeah and it's long and gratuitous right on the floor of the warehouse for like two hours right and and she was like can i have a blanket while you're fixing the lights and he was like no no i want you to look cold right. and so like everybody's having to step over her naked body for like three four hours it was like the worst thing i'd ever heard yeah it made me sad <laughs> yeah it was a bad scene i will never say anything bad about marina sirtis again <laughs> because that that broke my heart yeah she she had to put up with a lot in her career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people watched 45 minutes of Star Trek, and we're going to talk about Death Wish for, <laughs> for 15 minutes. Also in the show, apparently, Millibook uh, wears a 20th century human wristwatch. Huh. I didn't notice that. He does a Superman 2 with <laughs> a Rolex with Kyle Elton. Does Marlon Brando have a Rolex Yeah, in it? <laughs> Marlon Brando has like a Rolex watch in that scene where he's in there. <laughs> Wouldn't it be the great if that was the same, whatever, the continuity editor for Star- Superman was also for Deep Space Nine? <laughs> yeah, right. Back on point do we know where we were um, i think we're talking about the the nana visitor storyline where she's basically you know carrying this whole episode she does a fine job yeah there's this old guy she's got to get off the moon and she doesn't want to she hems and haws she sympathizes with him and eventually she helps him build a kiln that he's been working on when the final brick is put into place in the kiln she blows it up with a phaser yeah and then he says as long as that plate as long as that house is still standing i'm going to stay on this moon and she burns it down. Yeah, yeah. So she, I love. She the does way her this, job, and she I does think her that job, and and it's like yeah. nothing's tied up. Every, there's no clean bows on everything. He's like, hey, you're gonna have to kill me. And she's like a grandfather figure. She she has an affection for the old timers, basically that had to deal with the Cardassian occupation and everything. Yeah. So she feels 
she's got a lot of heart. She cares for her people. He's a nice, <laughs> he's clever. He's playing mind games with her, being a jerk and sit, telling her she has a nice ass and whatever and to piss her off. And yeah. She figures out the games he's playing and they have a nice little back and forth. No, and, I think, I think when he tells her his story, the story of how he got to the moon, that's some pretty great writing. Yeah. The stories is like he lands there and he doesn't have any, he, kills six Cardassians, which he sort of doesn't give a shit about. He sort of glosses over. Yeah, yeah. And while he's there, he's starving. So he he implements the Troll 2 method of uh, getting rid of <laughs> hunger pains, which is by 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 tightening your belt, which is a scene that's which is in Troll Two. That's a scene that's one of my favorite scenes in Troll Two. Uh, and then he tells like this: What year did Troll Two come out? Before this, yeah, well, I don't think they're taking okay. a lot of notes from Troll Two. I hope 2. they weren't taking any cues or told. <laughs> right. But there's a scene in Troll Two where the guy is like, "I'm gonna move my belt up one limb, li- uh, uh, right? One I can't limb, eat so I don't feel hunger pains. Yeah, 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 they couldn't eat the stuff. Yeah, but anyway, so <laughs> then he tells a story about how he tills the field on this moon with his hands. Yeah, it chews up the rocks when he gets to him. When he can't do it with his hands, he's chewing it up with his mouth. And that was like the baddest ass, weirdest story. That was so intense to me. Right. Yeah. And, and it's I, like I tamed this. I think a lesser, a lesser character actor or a lesser actor, but wouldn't have known what to do with that speech. Yeah. Yeah. But he, yeah. Yeah. He knew exactly what it needed. I felt like his pedigree was. Yeah. Brian Keith is better than just Star Trek. Good in this. He's, right. He's fine. But here's it, what it made me wish. And now that I believe that Nana Visitor can pull it off is where's Kira's story like that? We haven't heard that. We know where she, I mean, we we sort of know her emotions and we know where they're coming from. And we know sort of a broad sketch of her backstory. She fought in a resistance and a rebellion. But whenever it comes time to her to like actually sort of verbalize the stories, either to Odo or Cisco, it seems maybe once or twice, she's always been like, it was, you know, tough. We had to like, it was tough. Right. I think she was actually a child minor. Like she was in the mines. Yeah. I just wish that there was a story. And then she ends up escaping and and then ends up killing doesn't she end up she like killed somebody as a child Cardassians as as a child I think it comes out later okay that may come up later and I think you're right but so far that's what I'm missing from her backstory is she gives me like an image I feel like I don't need to know anything right. more about Mola Brooke right yeah it always just comes down to her being like I've seen some shit but yeah that's exactly like, tell right tell us what the shit was you know yeah <laughs> show don't tell kind of yeah you don't even have to elaborate just boil down like some sort of crystalline moment of tragedy right right that we can sort of encapsulate that for us and they do that for him in this episode this episode's got a really good writer peter allen fields is the guy who wrote inner light which is the star trek episode where where picard gets the flute and lives the life as another person okay oh my god that's a great episode so he wrote that so i mean he's a good writer and this would have been a great moment to do that where she sort of parries that back to him and tells him her story. Oh, yeah. Right. And to have that sort of crystalline moment. So that would have been the one thing. I yeah, she, she starts to tell a story about this tree that she hated as a kid. Yeah. Which is really just a metaphor for him. Right, right exactly. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, what what happened to that? Right. Do What'd you do with that tree? And she's like, I don't know yet or whatever. I like how he minimizes it by telling it to Cisco. <laughs> yeah. And Cisco's like, go on. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's like, fuck, you know, he's like mocking it by bringing it up to Cisco. So yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. And then also like when she's, so she goes back to the station and ineffectual government stooge and Cisco are sort of berating her about she needs to get this shit done. And the whole time I'm watching it, you're like, I'm thinking the whole time they're right. Right. And maybe it's just because I'm a crazy liberal socialist, but I'm like, no, they're right. The greater good 
blood of the people of Bajor is more important than this guy's house. Imminent domain, the motherfucker. Right, right. But I, I so I don't. She realizes that too. Ultimately, at the end, she makes that choice. But she's, you know, she's also ruled by her emotions, and she really grows to care for this guy. So it's really hard for her to be practical because mm-hmm. she wants to just do what yeah, feels right. Because it's got a face to it, and she's right, also right. just a person who wants to fight for underdogs. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and that's the whole speech yeah. Cisco gives her when he comes to the planet. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, you're used to rooting for the underdog. You're on the other side now. How's that feel? <laughs> and she's like, it's awful. Yeah, she even cries. And I, God, that's a good scene. It gives me some crying. Yeah, yeah. And I just love the way that it t- ends. He's like, you fucking killed me. And she's like, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to let you die. And it, it just ends with no resolution or anything. And just because there's no happy mm-hmm. ending, you know, but it's just life. I, I don't know. I really liked it. Yeah. And then she just uh, she sort of forced him to. And then I guess at the end of it, she just teleports him back. Right. Which they could have done immediately. Right. Yeah. yeah. They addressed that. And her argument was that makes us no different than the Kardashians. See, I'm not bringing that up as like a bad thing. I'm just in the part of the story. They could know? have tied it up where he comes to grips and says, well, I guess this is what I have to do now. Right. Okay, but he doesn't. Yeah. It just leaves it open. Yeah. He never comes back, does he? They don't No. They don't ever show what him on Bajor adjusting to life or anything. He's a minor character in one of the books, I think. I read that. But I okay. Know. I, I just want to see more no. of uh, Brian Keith, but no oh well. Yeah, no, he was good. He actually died not too long after this episode was made. Uh, yeah, I think he died like maybe a couple of years after he died. Well, he died in 97. Okay. So. Yeah. So he was probably poor of health. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. he was born in 1921. So right, was, right. Yeah, I like Brian Keith. There was actually a Brian Keith show in the 70s. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Called The Brian Keith Show? Yeah, called The Brian Keith Show. And then later he was in a TV show called Archer. Oh, okay. Which I didn't know there was another TV show called Archer. But, yeah, yeah, me neither. Okay, I think this episode's good. I just... I mean, I'm real prone to say this is my favorite of something when I really like something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this might be my favorite episode so far, but... Yeah. yeah. What about you, Hugh? I think this is a really strong episode. Like I said, I think this is what Deep Space Nine is really all yes. about. It's about the relationship between a pragmatic organization like the, the Federation trying to govern a hard situation on Bajor. And you're actually seeing where the rubber meets the road and how that actually happens. It's kind of an interesting look. And it moves the ball forward a little bit, showing the relationship and how much work they have to do to get Bajor, I guess, healed. I guess the this, this show is, in a way, a lot about healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it shows that it's not an easy path towards healing. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's one of those things that it's almost like a cliche that history is written by the victors. And that's true. But just in general, any progress in sort of human history, always someone's getting fucked. Right, right. And I think that good shows look at that and give you, you know, sort of the feeling of that because she's in a situation like a lot of there is no better way. There's no humanitarian option for Mullabag. Exactly. Yeah. They, they have to get him the fuck off the moon. This this advance is something that the Bajoran people, I assume, have voted on. I assume has pushed through the provisional government. And I believe I assume that it's popular on the home world. Right. Right. The moons are an annex to the home world. Yeah. It's basically like the TVA. We're making a lake. Exactly. You're going to have to move. <laughs> your town oh that's a that's probably the tva is probably a really great sort of this is better this is progress like at the end of oh brother where art thou yeah yeah we're gonna <laughs> give you we're gonna reimburse you we're gonna give you a new place to live but 
Mm-hmm. This this is going to be all underwater soon. So <laughs> this is an old Western trope. Oh yes, of, the, of yeah. you know the West is dying and that you need to move on or die mm-hmm. with it. The railroads coming to town. We're going to come through your land. Your cattle's not going to be able to graze. That kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like a change or die sort of situation. No, I think it's a win-win episode. I think both storylines. Well, I think the thing is that all it comes down to is that, and I think that it's bad because I, I think he did a good job. I don't think Brian Keith was Keith was right for me. Really. In this role. See? And I think he's a great actor. And I don't think I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a casting issue, not a performance issue. I think you're completely alone in this. I think Brian Keith was better than yeah. 90% of what they, they could have got for this role. I think you're on, you're a man alone on this. No, I, I'm totally, I, I totally know that. But I, I would say again that like if there was a more confrontational actor that could have been... And it could have slipped into melodrama and been really silly quick. No, nah, you're right. You're right. But I don't... Yeah, it would have just been, it would have been, you know, we know not a visitor can bring energy so it had just been them banging heads against each other yeah, yeah but I, I guess i meant nothing else has changed the lines aren't different right right so i'm not trying to rework the scenes so they're more antagonistic i just he seemed so kind to me and so affable yeah right isn't it harder to, to move somebody who's kind and affable than somebody who's an asshole it is but i think at the end of the time you're right but i think at the end of the day if the guy was an asshole you would just get frustrated and beam his ass off the first five minutes of dealing with him for me he had a hardness underneath him where basically yeah that's only really the most it comes out is when he attacks those Bajorans that come to clear out the mute townspeople that had their tongues cut out by the Cardassians or whatever. Yeah. Right. And cause like when he's, when he's like, and when he does that, I thought that was great. He's well, I'm not calling him a pussy. I'm saying that like, <laughs> he does kind of come off like a coot. He is a coot. Well, he is kind of a coot. I mean, he is. But that kind of, that's, but I think that it's easy. Okay, no, 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 I'm, 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 I think I'm nearing on it. All right. He comes off like a coot, so it's easier to discount his side, point of view, which I disagree with, but it's easier to discount his point of view. Yeah. Where if someone said it with like some sort of rock-ribbed, sober-eyed sort of intensity, I think maybe like I would be like, holy shit, this guy is for real. Where I, I think that I felt like, and maybe this is what they were going for, the director was going for in this, is that maybe I felt like, of course, this old, he's just like your grandpa. He's eventually going to shut the fuck up and get in the car. And the fact that he didn't <laughs> was, I guess, was novel, but it was also frustrating. Hmm. And so, like, and I get the feeling like right. if it was, if he was more of like steely eyed, keep the script the same. But if he was more steely eyed. Yeah, yeah. I think I just disagree. I think we just have different ratings on it, but that's fine. I know, but I feel like I, I don't. You're, you know, you're, you're entitled to your problem. There is something about this episode that didn't melt my heart, and I felt I want to join you guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Do we want to go back to the B story? If if this episode, <laughs> I think I think I'm fine with the B story. I think we all. This episode is all about land, basically, that's, and we learn that Ferengis hate yeah. land. Yeah, that seems <laughs> dumb to me. Right. This guy loves dirt. Nog hates dirt, and then goes back to my whole thing in the Nagus episode, where if this were made now, they would be like futures traders and or everything. But oh yeah, the Ferengi are absolutely not that. The Ferengi would have never left the gold standard, basically. Well, I don't understand. Like, is are you supposed to think that the Ferengi don't like land, or Nog just doesn't under because he's a kid? I just I took it as like the Ferengi are all about material. 
that they can. I did too. I got the sense. I got the sense that land was useless and that they only could see value in things that they can like hold and physically move. Right. Like there's something intangible about land that seemed beyond the frame. So their their greed is limited, and maybe this is a good thing for the rest of the galaxy. That greed is limited only to consumer goods. I think so. I think they do have limits to their and the service industry. I think so. I th- yeah. They, I mean, they love money, and they love money that is physical, that's not based on stocks or anything, although the Ferengi... Right. They're not getting a Roth IRA. They're not like... You know, they'd be buying all this gold from Fox News if they were... And burying it in their backyard. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that, I guess, is a win-win if they just don't understand that, because that's how truly evil rich motherfuckers are born, is through (laughs) land and futures trading, so... Right, right. Well, I think that maybe, maybe Nog, what we're learning is at the beginning of the episode, we're told that Nog doesn't have the lobes for it. And so there's this false notion of pedigree. And what this story illustrates is that pedigree is sort of irrelevant. The learning process is how you get better at something. And so Nog learns through this whole ordeal on how to do business and how to get better at business. Yeah. Does that yeah. make and, sense? And even probably more impactfully to Starfleet, Jake is learning these things too. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, they live in this like yes, yes. moneyless utopia. No kids are learning these kind of raw material lessons. And he's he's kind of, and by the end of it, he's the, the one that's making all the smart plays. Even in the end, he was like, we yeah, need proof you well, on the yeah. land. And, you know, like he's talking like he knows, he's talking like he's on the level that can do these kind of things. So yeah, yeah. That's sort of fun too, is that they're both sort of learning that. All right. Well, I guess let's just jump into the, uh, is there, if you could change anything about this episode, how would you, how would you fix it? You would recast you to back, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that would be the big one. Yeah. That would be the biggest one. I don't, I don't think I would do anything else other than the costume. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Changing, <laughs> changing the Bajoran outfit like it seems like a thing. But no, that that's that's about it. How about I, I felt like uh, the one the one thing I would change. I felt like this episode needed more Odo. Yeah, <laughs> I think that every episode could use more Odo. <laughs> yeah. I'm constantly irritated at how little they use. Like that's like a all or nothing. They have they don't have the ability to use their entire cast yet. You know they can only use about half of them at a time. You're right, but they did yeah. the best job of getting everyone a scene. I was actually paying attention to that. I would I would have Odo beam down to the planet and pretend to be a ghost <laughs> and scare the guy off his moon. I would Scooby Doo this that's one. That's the best Scooby Doo this motherfucker and get to get him off his moon. <laughs> it's old man Odo, right? So this this episode I thought was so good that the only thing I could come up with the change was was like a <laughs> yeah. was silly. So that's what you guys get from me this week. Wade, what do you got? Yeah, I don't know because I I mean I think it's obvious that I disagree with James about casting yes. uh, Brian Keith because he's he might have given he might be my favorite guest star. Well, I don't know. Wallace Shawn's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. No, I think he might be my favorite guest star that, that we've had so far. That Wallace Shawn was great as comedic and everything, but that his he he he's kind of got on my nerves. Yeah. <laughs> I think what? he just whipped out a Wallace Shawn impersonation. Who was that? I think the Nagus just showed up. For four weeks too late, buddy. You needed that. Oh, I, Where was I, the- made, I, I listened to this one a, a few days ago. I, I make my he 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 noises in there. Too. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You've limited yourself to a Wallace Shawn impersonation that can't use the word inconceivable. And so, <laughs> so yeah. All right, guys, I have quite a quick question. Uh, 
on the IMDb rating. So how do you think this rates out of the 10? I, I think people are probably a lot of a lot of people are probably got bored by this one because they're dumb and they don't <laughs> respect. What, but anyway, I, I say it has like a six. Point five. I would say higher than that. I would say seven. Really? Okay. Well, it's a six point eight okay. out of five hundred and seventy-three. Oh, really? Votes. It got a six point eight out of ten. So I think it's it's a pretty well liked episode when you consider the storyteller was a six point oh with just about the same amount of yeah. uh, uh, votes. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely it's better than that. Just for comparison. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yes, this no, is no, better no. than the storyteller. Yeah. No, I. So. This is okay. Okay, I think they're doing better TV here. Oh yeah. At the end of the day, I'm wonder. I like my nitpicking with it as of a higher caliber of nitpicking. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, I think that what I like about it is is this is an important episode because they're not obligated to monster of the week. They're not obligated to Star yes. Trek tropes. You know, no. an old but tried the makeup and true. in this episode is really good. Speaking of monster of the week, the Osepian that they buy the stem bolts from or whatever. Oh yeah, he did look good. They had good makeup for that. Yeah. They didn't just throw makeup or some face paint on a hippie. You know. Yeah, his mouth moves really well. Right. Yeah. In the mm-hmm. whole scene, yeah, no, yeah, he looked. Yeah, yeah, do they bring that? Do they bring those aliens back? Because that was a lot of work for like a three minute scene. I, I bet, I bet you see them all the time in Quark's bar. Yeah, yeah, background work. Yeah, I don't know, but you're right. That was some good work. Yeah, no, this was a this was a fine episode. I just I think that there was something about it, like at its core, that you're like, you, I know you think it's a click away from greatness, and that's what irritates you. Yeah, it's ninety percent there. Yeah, yeah. It's not just like how do you fix this episode to make it not like be a horror show. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We don't need right. to we don't need to like rearrange any of those structural walls or anything for it. Exactly. So and we've always said that it's going to be these podcasts are going to be more fun if they're really good <laughs> yeah, and we disagree or they're really bad. Like, so it, right, right. it seems like that's where like this. Right. This was definitely a, it's really good. And I it, there's something about it that's just elusive to me. Yeah. But next week we get Stiltskin. Oh, boy. OK. Yeah. I saw the <laughs> name of this one. I was like, oh, man, this next week's going to be a barn burner. We get a holodeck shenanigans. So. OK. Mm-hmm. See, we're back to being bogged down with Star Trek <laughs> tropes. <laughs> and we're back. Yeah. Well, we're kind of near the end. So the next few episodes, we have this. Uh, the next episode's a, a holodeck episode. Another one is a Loxana Troy episode. Oh, boy. Yeah. And then in a few weeks, we get Duet, which is one of one of the highest regarded shows right. in Deep Space Nine history. And then you have the finale, which introduces uh, Louise Fletcher. And uh, OK, so yeah. we're moving along. Yeah, we, we can get Nurse Ratchet's name in this time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, I I remembered that. I remember the first episode. <laughs> I I sorry, know. sorry for the first episode. We were like, I don't know what the hell her name is. We know you who you are, Nurse Ratchet. Yes. and I should know because I've seen you in person one time, and it's very disrespectful to my elders. I'm sorry. Well, she, I apologize. Everybody in her life calls her Nurse Ratchet. I'm assuming. <laughs> That's true. So, anyway, all right. All right. No, this, or Kai Wynn. So we had. Uh, so we we're moving on up. Uh, if everybody's uh, tracking us, this is a. Uh, where we may be, we're not out of, we have not left the doldrums completely, but we can expect just sort of a baseline of better episodes from this point, we hope, right? Fingers crossed. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. All right. All right. <laughs> Three to beam out. Three to beam out. <laughs> I just clapped at the end. <laughs> All right. That's not going to make it in. <laughs> Please follow us on Twitter. Now... 
I, it's not so much how much I talked. It's how little I said with how much I talked. I was pretty astonished by it. You, there's a learning curve with uh, good podcasting, guys. And I think you saw saw one of the, the steeper inclines. What to say about something when you don't like something but don't know why and are clearly in the minority. Uh, okay, so I have more thoughts on this episode. I, I do find it still a little... Here's where I think. I think at this time in the show, they're handling it in a competent, complicated character study way. Like, I feel like that this sort of lessons learned and stuff like that, I think they they felt like or was the form of better shows than what DS9 had been doing up until this point. Um, so I think that it felt different. I think it felt like you were watching a more competent, sure-handed drama. And I think that's because Peter Allen Fields is clearly <laughs> is clearly the MVP of this writer's room or anyone that wrote for DS9. I think he he has the best batting average. He's got the lowest, I mean, he's got the lowest attempts, but good god. And I think this is where I, you know, will crawl up my I'll crawl up my own ass for a minute here. I think it's something pretty interesting, you know, about when these were recorded, which is probably an early or to mid 2016. Well, you know, we were political dudes and it was a weird time in America and it has been only uh, surpassed by every day since. So obviously you're seeing us at the start of a journey that will take us to sad despondency but um <laughs> uh but the nightmare of which we are still unable to awake but it's interesting to see what cha- how it's changed me and how i view the sort of moral of this episode which is something along the lines of old soldiers or people who have had to fight hard for things have a hard time letting go to see the breaking of a new day and Something about that seems shallow to me because, and I, I think that, you know, I, I clearly, if you listen to this podcast, just politically, I was way more in a liberal back then than I am today, which is somewhere near, you know, a, a, a Stalinist or, <laughs> or like a, some sort of Bakunian, like, like total anarchist. But back then, like I agreed with some sort of the sentiments, the greater good, you're marching forward, it's time to put down the plowshares. Um, And I think I understand why that was interesting for the boys in the writer's room to tell that story back then. It was sort of where we were psychically as a country. We, We felt like, you know, we had won the wars of the 20th century and now it was time to you know all sort of get down with the new world order and i don't mean that in some sort of sinister black helicopter way i just i think there was a general feeling there was the end of history and the new day it was time to put away the cold war it was time to put away you know world war ii so you know that that just ain't where we are right now even more so than when we recorded this episode in 2016 so it's hard i i see the flaws in it more than i think I did it all when watching this episode. The philosophy of yielding versus not yielding or breaking way to a newer form of progress. The appeal of sort of hardliners, of political hardliners on the right and left, I'm sure I would have said, is because they're sort of stuck in the old wars and they need to sort of embrace a new day. And I think if you asked me back then in 2016, did I think we were in a better day? Yeah, I probably would have thought so. 
Um, and obviously it's, it's a joke now, but I also don't believe we're just a simple course correction away from being back there too. Like, I think that my opinion and my esteem of that sort of a political assessment of America in the 20th century fell from that to the, we are always been bad and we've always been in a slow cooking war and it's getting worse, not better. And yes, there's a new day coming, but that new day is probably worse than the day before by, you know, by huge magnitudes. So the, the hollowness of this episode does ring false. And I think you heard me saying in it that I wanted a, a more stronger performance to give the perspective more weight from the Brian Keith Brian Keith, David Keith, Keith David, that I would like to, instead of being treated as like a rat, rapscallion old coot, let's get grandpa to concede to going into a assisted living facility. Like that was sort of the tone of that relationship where I, I, I think that if it was more pitted like a Ducat versus Kira square off, that would have been a more enticing read because I don't, I do think there's merits to never fucking giving in. Ever. Never, ever, ever seed ground on anything. Ever. Make make them make you move. I see that as more <laughs> strong now. And I don't think that... I do think that the Federation's viewpoint on this is a little more facile than I think maybe I did when I first saw it. I'm not trying to play that I wanted to see that more then because obviously I didn't say that in the podcast so who knows what I felt then I like I said I was drunk and obviously self-absorbed so I don't remember what I was thinking but I, I do think that that's argument needed to be better voiced and the Federation's position and Kira's position and Cisco's position needed to be, you know, beat up a little bit. They, they should have, you know, some punches should have landed on that argument because I don't think it's 100% correct. And I don't think that the settlers' positions are 100% wrong. And so, yeah, there we go. I think that that's where I read that now. I obviously, like I said in the episode, it's obviously a cut above any of the other shows that we were watching in the season up until duet, but it was is just empty to me on other levels. Also, it is it is like boring. And I, I, the avuncular scenes between Nana Visitor and Brian Keith, I get her enticing because you're watching real sort of naturalistic acting. But all right, um, next week I think they do that Rumpelstiltskin shit. I'm glad I'm not doing that one. Send us an email at rulesofacquisitionpodcast at gmail.com. You can turn this off now. We believe in you.